You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Um, all right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming to our last Black Architecture Yarn of the Year. Um, last, I think it's been six seasons now. It's been going for a while. Um, first, I'd like to start by paying my respects to country, to Wurundjeri country, where we are within, breathe, stand, and we'll have this yarn tonight, and um, pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Um, obviously, we're going to be talking about... Uh, country and the processes around uh, reshaping it over the course of this evening. So I do want us to remember that every action that we take, every line that we draw, every decision that we make over the course of our lives impacts country. So hold that with you in this conversation because it's going to be fun. <laughs> um, my name is Sarah Lynn Reese. I'm a Palawa woman descending from the Trawaway peoples of North East Tasmania. I live and work across Wurundjeri, Bunurong, Bunurong country and uh, work in the context of being a senior associate at Jackson Clements Burroughs Architects and a lecturer at Monash University and also many things, um, including co-chair of the First Nations Advisory Committee for the Institute, um, which is pertinent in this context of this conversation, given that that's where we do a lot of advocacy for structural change and systemic change. I'm going to go down the line and ask my lovely speakers to introduce themselves. Paul? Uh, Nuranj Womaninji. Uh, my name is Paul Payton. Um, I'm a Gunai Monero man. Uh, my country is east of Melbourne, from about uh, Warrigal through to uh, the border uh, around Malakuta up to Mount Kosciuszko. Um, I'm uh, the CEO of the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations here in Melbourne, and I want to also acknowledge country, acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the lands that we're seated on today and where I work and live, but also all traditional owners across the state because my work has a statewide focus. So um, I want to acknowledge all traditional owners across the country and across the state um, that we work to affect systemic change in the areas of government uh, policy and legislation. As, a, as an organisation, we work collaboratively with traditional owners to seek that change, to recognise and assert uh, rights and interests for traditional owners here in Victoria. So uh, it's really um, it's really relevant to this conversation, I think. Um, and I want to be able to try and bridge the the work that uh, I do on a day to day basis, but also in in this context as well. And I do have a little bit of kind of connection um, through my my past uh, roles uh, working in. Uh, Aboriginal languages for 14 years and uh, their connections to story and what we what we how we understand country through language and and place um, and also prior to that I I 
didn't didn't complete, but I embarked on a bit of a study on, on landscape architecture back in the early days. So I, I have a bit of understanding around uh, around landscape and 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 so forth. So hopefully all of those things combined, I can contribute to this conversation. And and um, yeah, really looking forward to it. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Um, my name is Sophie Batitsis. I work with the Office of the Victorian Government Architect. Um, our focus is design and the built environment. Um, I'd love to be able to tell you a little bit about my heritage, actually. I'm jealous to, to hear about yours. So um, mine is uh, Greek-Australian, so that's I come from, it, from, from that perspective. But of course, uh, within government, um, a little bit of a, an objective and neutral position, I'd say. So, um, uh, but really looking to see how we can integrate a deep cultural awareness in our processes. So I think that um, it's, a, it's a fantastic opportunity and um, I'm really looking forward to the discussion tonight as well. Thanks, Sarah, thanks for having me. Um, my name's Alex Kennedy. Um, I'm of settler migrant um, heritage, so I'm really learning about my relationship to country as I go through this process. Um, it's, a, it's a long learning process I think I have ahead of me. Um, I've had a strange career. I sort of started off um, studying neuropsychology and then went into international development and then into the tertiary sector, cultural partnerships, and then into the built form environment. Um, so all throughout that work, um, I've basically um, been thinking about rights-based approaches to project management and thinking about how do you elevate those voices of people who are marginalised and that's been a, a really um, interesting trajectory because I think there's a lot of commonalities through all of that work. I don't think you have to be in the built environment to think about that. Um, I would also like to acknowledge country. I'm, you know, very, very blessed to be um, living and working on Wurundjeri country and pay my respect to their elders past, present and future. I'd like to acknowledge that that land is not ceded land and it's really important that we acknowledge that. I also work on Yorta Yorta country um, and it's, you know, through a very deep engagement there with community and um, I feel very, uh, yeah, privilege to, to have that engagement with an all Aboriginal board, which hopefully I can talk to you about later. I guess um, I work in First People State Relations in the Department of Premier and Cabinet. Uh, we have self-determination at our heart. I'll certainly talk about how I don't think we put that into practice every day in government, um, but it is the, the ideal. And um, really thinking about how we, as a department, we're doing treaty, we're doing Europe, we're doing a whole lot of things. So it's a big time of change. How can we embed those processes into the built environment going forward? So, and Sarah and I have been having a lot of chats about this. So, thank you. Thank you all. As you can tell, very esteemed people joining me on the panel today, which I'm very excited about. Um, you'll have to forgive me, I had surgery a week and a half ago and my brain's still a little bit foggy from all of the medication that they gave me. So I'm going to read out the blurb, um, not what I would normally do, but please, please forgive. Um, so as you may have read, the intent of this yarn is to understand that architecture operates within colonial systems and that these systems are often at odds with caring for country practices, genuine participatory design practices and equity of opportunity. Um, in my opinion, it's my opinion, maybe we can flesh this out a little bit more. Um, if you trace the systems back to their core, um, the problem is often a misalignment in the values that govern decision making. So a little bit of work has been done um, in various aspects in the built environment to, I don't want to say align, I don't want to say change one system or bring it in or find a common ground between, I guess, to understand and to be able to interpret and translate um, between Aboriginal and Western systems more closely, but 
nothing that's been done is by any, by, by any means perfect and also nothing that's been done is the silver bullet and I think it's probably worth acknowledging that there's not one answer to this. It's going to take a very long time and a lot of change has got to happen. Um, uh, one, um, well, I think I wrote down here, while one might find themselves thinking, just burn it all down and start again, um, when confronted with the scale and deeply ingrained nature of these systems, it's something that we probably can't do and shouldn't advise because think of all the carbon that would be released. Um, um, but we need to keep continuing to evolve our built environment processes. Uh, otherwise, we'll continue to destroy country and impact the health and well-being of country and community. Um, so we're going to talk through the built environment processes and, and explore how there are opportunities and why systems could and should change and how everyone can play a role in effective positive change because you live here, therefore you are responsible. Um, I think I started that description with uh, a statement that reads, architecture operates within colonial systems. So I do want us to take a moment to have a bit of a conversation about that statement as a fundamental truth that we're accepting in this context as much as anything can be or can't be a fundamental truth um, and ask or have a little bit of a yarn about, you know, as architecture operates within a colonial system, how is it embedded? What are the systems that it interfaces with? Is there flexibility in the system to do things differently or just what even is the system? Um, because quite often systems are not tangible. They're not something that you can point to and say it's that. Um, so how do we define it? Paul, would you like to go first? I knew I'd be first. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um, yes, I think I think uh, thinking about architecture in a in a colonial system, um, the word the word um, uh, occupying comes comes to mind for me. Um, occupying a space, um, and we all occupy a space. Uh, we. You know, if you understand space um, and negative space and all those kind of uh, ways of thinking, but architecture as occupying a space and connecting that to a, a colonial mindset, and that's about um, taking over a space for me. Um, so, and often that can be, um, well, it's tearing, tearing away the, the country and building something that, you know, that remains there and is um, fixed in that space. And, but I think it's about the process as well. Um, you, know, you think about colonisation and the occupancy of this country and it was done by um, not recognising or you know, ignoring what was here before and occupying something else over, over that layer. And that's, you know, that's where we find ourselves in the environment today. And, but I think it's about the process, you know, that can be a violent process or it can be um, what we start to see now is a more sensitive process um, treading lightly on the land. So I think, yeah, it's, for me, it's something that um, can be quite, quite rigid and very entrenched in colonial mindset. But um, I think... Uh, that 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 new ways of uh, approach to design thinking, to um, the use of materials, the reflection of country back into the into the the built environment, are all ways that, as you as you sort of consider the flexibility within that, that we can actually start to 
start to understand one another between those two systems. So um, that's what my mind goes to around um, colonial systems and architecture. And uh, I think, you know, we're on the right path, but, you know, there's still a long way to go. So interesting because I, I, in thinking about that question, I, I, th I think about the way architects approach um, problem solving and site and it's a little bit innocent, I guess, when we, through our education, um, you're sort of taught to think about site, context, in its most fundamental way around systems and, um, you know, landscape, um, what came before, what can come after in terms of a creative act. and. Um, but of course, this is not apolitical. You know, there's a demarcation around site. So it, obviously someone's made some decisions about ownership and um, about who this belongs to. And then if you really start to think about that, you, there's a little bit of discomfort really around that um, if you really start to question it. And of course, during our education, if you were interested in, you know, political systems like I was at the time, um, you, you realise that actually, you know, um, uh, space, architecture are all somehow do reflect the time, do reflect politics, do reflect, um, you know, um, the dominant system. So that that's what I've started to really think about. It's really, I'm, I'm surprised because I sort of went through and have gone through my architectural career sort of trying to sort of disassociate from that. But I think it's it's really interesting. I think there's become, a, there's a heightened awareness about um, uh, the culture, the importance of culture, uh, what's come before us. Um, and I think it's a great thing, actually. I think it's uh, it's about time. So uh, um, it's, it's really forcing our office to think hard about um, processes that we took for granted, I think. Um, and uh, and so we're really starting to unpack how we we do things, but um, we've got a long way to go and we're, we're just learning. So it's it's been a very interesting um, journey and, and fast learning curve, I think, for our office and for me personally. So it's a bit, yeah. Yeah, I think to add to that, I mean, colonial systems have, I guess, operated primarily to elevate the interests of certain people and to repress the interests of others. Um, I think the built environment industry reflects that. I think we have to acknowledge that, um, you know, only the middle class and the upper class can really afford an architecturally designed home. Um, the best civic infrastructure is located in the best or the most expensive postcodes. So there is a disparity that is created by this industry, not necessarily architecture per se, but the broader industry um, that I think we really need to acknowledge. I think the thing for me and my experience, which is different, I'm sort of a project manager, I'm not an architect, is that um, decision-making still really sits with First Nations people. It's still with the architecture team, the project manager, the client, the developer. Um, we're not actually putting that decision-making into the hands of First Nations people, and that is absolutely representative of all of our, our colonial systems. I think there's a lot of brilliant work being done, as Paul and um, Sophie have referenced, around, you know, this conscientiousness that's coming through. Um, but I, I think, yeah, there's, there's some big classist issues, and, um, but there's a lot we can do, I think. So to summarise, it's sort of terra nullius um, as a system, uh, the cadaster system and the Torrens title system that established ownership or the sub the subdivision of land um, 
uh, I guess, economics in the sense of growth and capitalism and wealth development for an elite few, um, planning um, and the controls that we that were written by humans, I think is important to point out, because if they're written by humans, they can be changed by humans. Um, and, uh, and then education and the, I guess, the inference over time of, well, things being relative to their time and to the culture of that time, noting that that's usually the dominant culture. Is that a good summary? Okay, lots of systems. We interface with a lot of systems. Um, Flexible. I think, I think we can move it. <laughs> Constructs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I wondered if you, any of you, had um, examples. I think this is probably the easiest question of this evening, um, of projects or experiences where it was clear that the colonial system and the indigenous system did not align; they clashed, um, and what that was like and what the fallout of that was. Every single project I've worked on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, and I guess. I think there are some beautiful moments in projects and I think there's really great work that's being done. Um, but I think the, the number one practical thing for everyone, it's, it's basically time. I think we get often given budgets, given projects, given a brief, you have to deliver on time. Oh, you've got to engage, you know, you want to engage with the First Nations community. They're doing three jobs because they're, you know, responding to government requests. They're doing their own job. Um, you know, they're being cultural experts. Um, and then we, you know, fly in and say we want to engage with you. What do you think of this project? So I think it's really that um, time pressure that's often a lot to do with poor planning, which I know we'll talk about some of the solutions to that. Um, but I think we don't, shouldn't be afraid of decision-making and handing over decision-making because it can be done really, really well. But interestingly, I think um, from, I think it's so true, Alex, like it's every single project really, um, there's a clash because, but I think there's a strong desire to engage, but it fundamentally, it's still on our terms, <laughs> on, 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 you know, the dominant cultural terms, I think. So um, there's, you know, time, we get, yes, it'll all happen, uh, but, but we've got certain time constraints, you know, um, so it'd be good if we could do it really quickly. Um, uh, or, um, well, there's a risk risk framework that we need to consider, um, which of course relates to time and money. Um, so it's, um, yeah, very interesting. I think there's something about the conversation that uh, needs to acknowledge, or the process that needs to acknowledge that um, if you're really going to engage in this type of conversation, you need to allow some contingency to learn and to understand if you're really honest about it, I think. So, um, yeah, every single project at the moment. So. Uh, I think it's sort of worth sort of looking at that, that risk framework that you mentioned as well. Um, and it's often a challenge that I've heard around uh, and the perspective that, you know, uh, engaging with community or um, empowering community is seen as a risk and and it's a risk to um, project deadlines and project outcomes and um, it's something that that needs to, sh to shift to to enable um, the process to basically um, follow a, a true process and um, I think that how we how we do that is is by educating uh, or, you know, all of the people involved, 
right from the investors um, right through to the, the project delivers to the, to the builders on site, you know, um, to understand community process. And that's where that tension lies because the alignment between community priorities, community values, community processes don't align with uh, colonial Western um, concepts of, of time and, 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 um, and values and space and um, and how we how we how we kind of address that is to build that um, cultural competency into the system so that um, and I know you want to get to this later around um, the brainstorming session but you know right from the very start that uh, it's built into the process so and there's a lot of tensions out there um, in in um, in the processes and a lot of give and take um, a lot of uh, take taking away from community uh, priorities and values. Uh, I think about cultural heritage in that way and that um, often you know, traditional owners are, are, are made to make a decision between, uh, you know, um, recovery of um, cultural heritage or, you know, demo demolishing it. And um, it's not, it's often not a consideration to preserve what's there. So, um, and that's, that's the preferred outcome for traditional owners is to 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 preserve that cultural heritage, um, but often it's um, and the legislation doesn't support that. It uh, it it often will you know, it, well it's effectively traditional owners are signing off on you know destruction of their cultural heritage to facilitate a project, and it's uh, and it's, and it's under the you know the concept of um, cultural heritage management, <laughs> so. You know, there's there's a lot there's a lot in the system that needs to be reformed, and um, and you know that's what self determination is about. You know, and and we're going on that journey of self determination and and looking at ways to enable that. And that's around, you know, addressing healing, um, yeah, enabling power and resources to communities, decision making, all those types of things need to be embedded in our processes to actually um, allow us to to apply. Uh, that change and achieve that kind of uh, coming together of the two worlds. Anything else to add? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty uh, obvious answer to the question, isn't it? No. Um, so my next question is flipping the, that same question on its head and asking if you have examples or aspects or moments, as mentioned before, within projects where the colonial systems and these indigenous systems somehow synchronised or somehow worked together um, to get a good outcome, even if only minor. Um, and we can talk about some that we've worked on before, but... Yeah, um, I'm currently working on a project that I guess I wouldn't say is self-determined um, entirely because if it was self-determined, the community would be managing it. They would have complete control and be running it themselves. I, I wouldn't be involved, which would be great and looking forward to that. Um, but there is a self-determined decision-making model in it and it's the first of its kind. It's I report to an all-Aboriginal board and I think... Often in projects, people, for fear of engaging, which you were talking about, Paul, of um, this risk environment that it might slow things down, um, so there's a fear or reticence to engage. Um, I guess the approach here is to really say, here is the decision-making framework. What What is your priority? 
you know, it might be a time cost. We know that the levers in a project are time, cost and quality and scope. Like we know they're the levers. So enable community to make those decisions with the full knowledge of what that, the impacts of them are. And you be surprised, people make fantastic decisions. So I, that's been a really, really fantastic process for me. And I think the difference is, though, I have a client who is the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and her she's not interested in is there a room here, what's it look architecturally, like the only interest in, for that client is is the community happy. So for me that's a, that's a really easy client um, because it means I get to work really wholeheartedly with community. Um, I guess, Sarah, we've worked on one. I left you, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I know. Um, but that was... I guess just for me it was such a sensational collaboration because, I, I mean, I learnt so much from that and embedding it in my work, but I was really thinking about what Paul was getting to and, and Sophie, just how at the beginning do you set up those principles? How do you set the scene for the rest of the project to follow as opposed to kind of designing it and going, is this okay? Do you like it? Um, which is really not consultative and it's, as you say, people are signing off on the destruction of, you know, their land or... Um, so I think, yeah, you, you probably got a lot more to say about it. <laughs> I was going to say we had fun on that one with um, what was the first time I've ever seen an EOI or an RFT that was for an Indigenous architect, like lead Indigenous architect, which was interesting um, and fun. Um, but then also, you know, we, we explored that on every angle. We had a cultural risk register um, of if the things, things, things didn't go a certain way according to traditional custodians or engagement with the Indigenous client group, then that was a cultural risk to the project. Um, and to them, yep. And uh, I think we had a social procurement um, agreement embedded within the contractor's contract that listed every single item that was Indigenous, that came out of Indigenous engagement and say these can't be substituted because we were novated. Like we, we attacked that one from every angle that we could possibly think of to protect the um, integrity of that process. Um, anyway, sorry, I took over. Go. No, that's it. I think that was just, yeah, it's really that kind of foregrounding um, and understand, understanding those tensions between you know, what a First Nations community might want and the, pro the needs of the project and realising that you can bring them together. Yeah. The end client. Um, so it's called the Atlantic Fellows for Social Change Hub. It's at the University of Melbourne and it's funded by a philanthropic donor and it's for First Nations um, activists or people who are interested in social change. So it's a leadership program for them. There's juniors, um, mid-career, and and so basically they get full funding to um, leave community. They get fun, you know funding to pay for whatever um, deficit that that makes from them leaving their communities, and then they get put you know go through an executive leadership course and then paid to do whatever it is. I, I won't speak to the merit of that program because I don't work on the programmatic side, but Sarah and I were working on the actual space for that program. Yeah, I'm trying to think um, of specific examples. I, I, I probably can talk a little bit more about how um, I, I don't think I've worked on that powerful a model, I think, where, you know, the um, there's a, such a leadership from um, the Indigenous community. But I think there's, there's certainly aspiration with some of the major projects. So um, there's certainly some projects that we're looking at at the moment and that we're involved with where um, there's an aspiration and a desire to work with traditional owners on, on, on um, 
so, uh, and I don't think I can talk really about the, this project and the details of it, but where we really are working along traditional owners and we've embedded some principles around um, healing country um, and that those principles are guiding specific collaborative design processes as well um, and also design review processes. Um, so that's been interesting. And, and also I think that um, in just in terms of alignment, when I think about um, landscape design as a discipline and that, that alignment, that it seems to be because the landscape design is sort of a little bit broader than the site and sort of goes beyond, um, uh, it, it seems to resonate a little bit more with that conversation and around indigenous design principles as well. So I found that quite interesting. And maybe that's why landscape design as a discipline has also taken the lead on a lot of indigenous design initiatives, I think. Because um, I do think it's a little bit of a broader, broader look. Architects also um, can look more broadly, but there's something about um, landscape systems and, uh, and looking beyond um, and making deeper connections um, that's, and you know, really uh, restoring landscape that seems to, be, um, seems to resonate, I think. So that, that, they're my experiences at the moment that come to mind, so I'm not sure. Um. Not being an architect or landscape architect, I might struggle to to answer that one directly. Um, I do sit on the periphery of things through friends and family, but uh, where where uh, traditional owners have been empowered and led processes, and um, and the outcomes have been significantly different um, for for country, for that community, and um, for that for that place. And I think it's a testament to the process. I can talk about in the space that I work in now, which is um, it's more geared around sort of um, statewide strategic planning, um, working in the space with traditional owners to uh, develop statewide strategies that, are, that address the barriers that currently exist within legislation and take, for example, cultural fire. I'll just name a couple. Um, uh, water. So, uh, uh, when water was decoupled from country and commodified as, uh, you know, it's it's worth $11 billion water in the, in the market now and traditional owners haven't, had, you know, hardly see a cent of that. Yeah. Um, native foods and botanicals, uh, the work that we're doing there uh, and um, the development of a cultural landscape strategy which looks to apply uh, a... a a cultural landscape approach to managing country across all jurisdictions and, and, and so forth. So, and what's been successful in the delivery of those projects has been about the process. It's been about the relationships, um, the empowering of traditional owners to, to lead the direction of that work, um, and the preparedness of government to uh, establish co-governing arrangements so that there's joint decision-making, um, which is, you know, uh, integral to, uh, as we were speaking before, around enabling self-determination and, and decision-making and ensuring that the benefits are um, identified by the community and for the community. So, it, and that's completely applicable to, you know, a successful project, an architectural landscape project is, is those processes um, because what we'll see by that relationship um, 
in that process that we'll see those um, those things come out in in those conversations to ensure that the 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 design or the outcome is is considerate of what what the priorities are for traditional owners, and that's you know um, priorities for um, community, uh, culture, and country. So um, yeah, it's it's something that uh, we can we can really learn from and apply in so many different sort of aspects of of all of our work. All right, thank you. Um, We've all sort of touched on this a little bit and I think I've this is where I got foggy in the brain when I started writing this question, so bear with me. Um, but what I have wanted to say is that I often think is values is the centre of gravity of a system. So um, wherever those values sit is the centre of gravity of the system. But then I started to mix metaphors. Um, but oh, hold on. Gravity of the system and in the context where gravity... Um, oh, God. Sorry. Have surgery. It's really fun. Um, I'm just going to read what I wrote. How about that? I often like to think about values as being the centre of gravity of a system. Okay, we got that. Um, gravity in the sense that you can't actually see gravity, so you can't actually see the values. All you can actually see is the impact or the effect of them. So we don't necessarily – we can't point to values as a tangible thing that we can look at. They're just implicit. And they – they, effectively guide decision-making for systems, whether we know what they are or not, whether we're living within them, whether we have any interplay with them. This is where I mix metaphors. Um, in that uh, more often than not, um, when we see change in the system, we're treating the symptom rather than the underlying clause, cause. So what I mean by that is that you have excellent people working in these environments who, by the fact that they bring their own value sets to create change, unless that change is systemic, if, that person, if any of you leave your jobs, um, the system won't pick up what you were doing. So I guess that that's what I mean by the fact that we treat the symptoms uh, rather than the underlying cause. So the bigger question, I guess, for me, if you're still with me, um, is that how do you change the core values of a colonial system? And can it be done? Who should do it? And how should it happen? Paul? <laughs> Sorry, that was a Such bit a of a journey. Such a big question. <laughs> Can, can you repeat that? <laughs> um, I've always had this thing about education. I think, you know, some of the symptoms we see in today's society um, are a result of a failed education system. And, um, and, you know, we're starting to change that, but we see a lot of attitudes today that, uh, um, you know, would be, you know, Racially, uh, uh, view, racial views that uh, are built on uh, a misunderstanding or a, a, an education system that's not um, told the story of this country accurately, and you know we can we can fix that, and we're do, we're we're recognising it again, we're recognising it, and we're and we're building in processes through our curriculum and our engagement with with um, with local traditional owners to, to to shift and there's a generational shift and I've always believed that but you know you need to start um, you need to start that process and um, we, we can shift the system and by 
um, continuing to engage with each one another, work together with one another, then we can we can shift that 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 gravity, those values, to be something that's um, uh, understood, um, respected, and, and valued, and um, that I think. Yeah, um, where am I going? I think you know the those values um, that you speak of, that that gravity. Um, I think about connection to country. I think about um, how we all feel uh, through our values and how we connect to a place. And values are uh, and place and connection are integral to to who we are and how we understand one another. So. I think we're 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 on the right path, but uh, you know we've got to undo, you know, over over two hundred years of 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 almost being you know invisible in this in in the colonial society, um, but we're we're um, heading in the right direction. I can only reiterate that. Um, I, I I do think it's possible we. We've been through 400 years of occupation in Greece <laughs> of the Turkish Empire, so it's possible. And it is about education, in fact. So I, I think um, I think it's been very interesting from our perspective um, because we, from working where I work with the Office of the Government Architect, um, which is very much aligned with the colonial system, really, in <laughs> a framework, um, if you really think about the origins of, the, of that particular position and office, um, which supports government in its, you know, processes. Um, it's a tricky one. It's a very tricky space. And I think the only way to really shift it is to actually open up, um, make visible what was invisible, in fact, um, and, uh, and which has been pushed aside, I guess. And the only way to shift the dominant culture or the dominant value system is to learn more about other value systems and other cultures um, and to speak to other people that are different to you. Um, so I, I think it's as fundamental as that. And that's the only way to unpick this um, this problem, So, um, which I think is, it is a problem. It's problematic. We're still, there's a lot of racism out there. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, bias. Um, and I guess it just comes from a particular dominance that that is there so um but people are very fearful of change so um but there's nothing to be afraid of i think it's just um a little bit of sharing of experiences and um and values um so uh yeah it's pretty fundamental but but not scary at all yeah i think um truth telling is obviously the first step and i think you know education that's part of the big step in education. Um, I think we've been getting it wrong for 250 years. We need to acknowledge that. Um, and I guess for me personally, like I, I think, and I don't know how many of you have had this, but I, I suffered from what I call white paralysis, where I was so scared of getting something wrong that I didn't do anything. And I was, you know, talking to a First Nations colleague and he's like, this is a shared history. You can be a part of this. You're going to get it wrong. Of course you're going to get it wrong, but if you go in with integrity and respect and realising that um, there's only something to be gained from that learning journey together, um, you know, it will work. And, you know, he was absolutely right and that sort of changed, that actually pivoted my whole career, that conversation. Um, 
So I think it's about not being afraid. I think we all have an obligation to do something. We'll talk about, you know, you don't have to be in the forefront of Indigenous engagement or, you know, an activist. There's so many things that you can do that are really small and easy um, in your everyday life to be a part of this and to shift that dialogue. Um, it's great that it's happening. But, yeah, there's a lot more we can do. And, and I think debunking this idea of, you know, obviously it's a racist idea but it's prevalent in Australian society, what would a society look like with First Nations people thriving? It's a small population. It'd be amazing. We'd all benefit. Like, it's not a big deal. It's not, we're not talking big dollars. Like, it's, I mean, we are talking big dollars. We need big dollars. But we're not talking, like, massive, you know, it's, it's doable. So I think um, it's shifting those kind of paradigms. It's interesting, though, Alex, this idea of paralysis, actually, because I do think that um, uh, some people are afraid to, to, to venture into the territory uh, and to have the conversations because you're afraid that you're going to get it wrong. And, and I often get it wrong. <laughs> I'll ask some bumbling questions, but, um, but I, I figure it's all about learning, something that I don't know. So um, I think that, that, that if we approach it from a, a point of curiosity... And, um, and just uh, a, a bit of um, cultural exchange. And we're all human. Uh, so I, I just feel approaching it from a very human perspective is important. All right. If you could change just one thing in the system right now and have the net result to be better outcomes for country, culture and community, what would it be and why? So much better when I just read it. <laughs> I think we, uh, it's, I don't want to say education again or racism again, uh, because if we could, if we could change that overnight, we would, we would do all those sort of things that we can, that we've just spoken about in, to enable that change because there's that openness to actually. Okay, education's <laughs> a given next. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was just finishing that one. So what else would we change? Um, um, Jeez, there's so, there's, so, there's so many things. I think um, what would we change? Uh, we would uh, enable uh, true self-determination because uh, we're enabling communities to restore uh, culture and authority back into the landscape. So um, that's – but to do that, we need to be able to enable that and be prepared to actually um, yeah, give some power back, yeah. So as as you know, as a colonial society, so um, that's that would um, a shift in that thinking would would actually um, allow that to happen. That's you know, it's been touched on around what are you, what are we scared of? Well, yeah, there's a, there's there's a sort of a a risk or something about handing over power. So, and there's nothing to be scared about. It's it's about coming together and, and going on that journey together uh, for the benefit of all the community. So, yeah. I'm gonna pose a controversial um, point at an architecture forum. Um, it's probably not thinking that architecture is always the solution. I think we're quite obsessed with this idea of like, I think representation in the built form and landscape environment is really important. We don't like what we've got, barely anything in the city. We've got a, a building with William Barrack on it, but like, you know, you go to Canada and New Zealand and you do see a lot more representation. So I do think that. 
But we jump to that as a solution. We jump to artwork as a solution before we even go and ask community what is their priority. Um, their priorities might be job creations, being a part of the process of a project and learning what that's like to deliver it so they can deliver their own. Um, it, you know, it might be a whole range of other things and it might be protecting a waterway because that's absolutely the most important, you know, some of the work that you're doing, Paul, around thinking about that strategic mapping and, and saying, well, actually, no, we need this waterway to, to bring all the nutrients in, to look after country. Because, and all, there's, this, there's story creation, creation stories here, we need this site. So I think it's about having those conversations really early on and setting what the priorities are. And that might not be a building with, that's wonderfully designed with, you know, something on it. It might be about the community getting into that building really quickly because they don't care about the design, they just want to use it. And then they'll take it over and do whatever they want with it. So I think a little bit less around this idea of design is always the solution. It does great things though. We love you all. Well, I mean, uh, what I was going to say is to put design in the centre, but no. <laughs> um, no. Not really, though. I, I, the d design in the sense that we, we talk about, and I, I, we don't talk about design in terms of representation or a particular outcome. I, I guess from, from my perspective, it would be great because we, we, we are sort of, in, in, our, in my role at least, talking about the built and the natural environment and about how we can affect that and, and sort of influence that. And so often, um, in the context that I work with, it's about time and money. And I'd love it if we could just use this as an excuse to say no. It's about legacy. It's about quality. It's about um, the right the right outcomes for community. So if we put that, if we really turn conversations on their head and, and put that back in the centre and everything worked around that, <laughs> I do actually feel, feel like we would come at a different, you know, at a, in a, get to a different place. Um, and I mean design in its broadest sense, you know. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not talking about straight lines versus curved lines, you know. Like I, I'm actually talking much more deeply about, um, about starting a conversation with people about what, what, what's the long-term legacy, you know. What, what, kind, what kind of... Um, uh, what do we want to be saying to future future generations about what we're doing right now in the in the natural environment and the built environment as well? So um, uh, I think that would make a huge difference. It's what we've been talking about for a very long time, but I think in the present context, we you know um, I'd be saying it's a, it's around you know um, this current engagement and awareness around culture as well. So I'd be putting that right in the middle, starting there. So. My answer to that question is put Aboriginal law in planning law and see how that changes everything. <laughs> um, all right, I'm on to my last question, but it's just a multifaceted question. Um, in that we're going to take it step by step instead of me asking the whole thing all at once. <laughs> um, I want to have, as you mentioned before, Paul, a little bit of a quick fire brainstorm, throw out there things that could or should happen in different stages with the intent of improving the health and well-being of country and better outcomes for country, culture and community. Um, in the sense of systemic change, what could we do? So speculative or in your experience and projects that you've worked on, at the stage of business case and feasibility. Step one. <laughs> 
Might be you guys. <laughs> I, I, I want to just preface it with uh, relationships. Yep. If you already have a relationship, then uh, you've got systems in place to have community at the table at that stage of a project. So I'll just leave it there for now. And <laughs> no, to add to that, I think relationships are so important. I think um, often what projects, you know, the focus of a project is the outcome. And it's not about building that and sort of what Sophie was saying before, it's like it's not building that long-term legacy in that relationship and I think we need to think about those engagements as long-term engagements that go beyond the project and the outcome and it's about the process of that engagement. Um, business case and feasibility. Sorry to, for anyone who's heard this statistic before, it's my, one of my favourites, but um, and it's probably slightly wrong, so sorry, data analyst back there, I can see. <laughs> but, um, you know, 30% of... Um, Victoria's GDP roughly goes to construction, yet less than 2% is going to First Nations people. And that's only on the good, good projects. So that's a selection of projects, 2% is going to First Nations people, is absolutely the number one space that we can see transfer of wealth and power tomorrow. And it's being built on stolen land and stolen goods. It's so obvious to me. So I think going back to that kind of point about what do people want and relationships. So having that conversation at the very beginning embedding those principles or law into the business case, into the funding model um, and into the brief would be first step. You're running ahead of me. Um, number two, site selection and site investigation. This is all pre-architect being on board, by the way, so we're talking about what happens before an architect comes on board. Before an architect comes on board. I can only only think to to um, place and knowledge. Um, I've I've got a enduring interest in place names, and uh, and that's from my time in languages, obviously, and uh, and what that can tell you about a place, and uh, and the knowledge that's associated with that can tell us about site selection. You know how many times have places been built where it floods? You know, so you know the the feeling of, feeling of Port Phillip Bay is a, happened ten thousand years ago. Yet there's a traditional Bunurong story that talks about that. So you know there, you know, no one built a house there, but but um, but that's it's it's an example of of enduring and intergenerational knowledge about a place and and how we can um, learn from that um, rather than thinking that it's, you know, or being dismissive of, of that knowledge and, and being regarded as irre irrelevant. So um, that's what I would say. Well, um, I can only think of a recent project we were both involved with and other people in this, this <laughs> circle have been involved with and just about, um, uh, a very similar, it's really what you were talking about, about the, the type of um, information you can gain by speaking to the right people <laughs> about about that place. And um, and it just astounds me, the, the cultural heritage sort of investigations that take place that are probably really looking to, you know, the last 200 years and, and not really going much further back. So I do think... Um, Definitely, um, that type of investigation that really looks into a deep analysis of place um, and uh, and talks to the right people about that, um, 
But going back to, going back to your earlier question about business cases, and this is probably going to Alex's point about, because business cases are often about, you know, building a business case for a particular solution. And it's interesting because really, if you, if you really talk to the right people before that, before you get to the business case, and it's about project inception or what's the problem, yep. you know, like it, at, um, in, within government, we, we have these processes called investment logic mapping about... <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a little bit of a, uh, you know, a discussion about what's the problem and what, what do we need to do to solve this problem? Um, and can we explain it in one page or less or in terms that most people understand? And, um, and then does that mean we need to build something or is there another solution? And so even at that point, I think, um, before you get to the funding, the business, you know, what this exploration about What's the problem we're trying to solve through government investment in either a service or a building or a, um, if, we're, if we're actually having discussions with traditional owners around these issues, we, we might be designing services that are relevant, that are, that are you know, either needed or... Um, so I just feel like even before that, like there's a, there's a lot that we can gain, that can be gained from having the right conversations with the right people at the right time. So. Yeah, I'd, I'd, um, I just think... It's really interesting in industry, I think cultural heritage management plans or mapping is seen as a negative um, and it's really seen predominantly around artefacts or, you know, it's got a very limited view. Um, I'd love to see mapping of stories um, of all of the sites of significant gathering places and then thinking about, yeah, again, that principle setting, you know, do we develop that? Maybe we don't. Um, and I think elevating those stories, thinking about how, because we know that those stories connect us to country, they nourish us, they make us feel um, more connected as a society. So I think that's the really big one that's missing um, out of the process. That I think it's what we chatted about before. It's embedding those principles into the brief. I think, unfortunately, in government and, you know, it's about knowing the levers that you have to have in contracts at the moment. Um, I'd like to see us move beyond that. I, you know, we put levers, I put levers now in building contracts about product substitution to make sure we have First Nations products or, um, you know, we have minimum targets, but again, the minimum targets at the moment set by Department of Treasury and Finance are between 1% and 2%. I've just contracted a builder, they're a First Nations builder, and they just committed to 20% um, social procurement for First Nations businesses. So I think it's about also putting in, if one of the, I guess, the barriers to people doing good work and transferring wealth is this idea that it's going to cost more money and time. So I think it's about also putting the brief and the business case going back one step is funding for resourcing to develop those relationships because it's really about those relationships. Um, and if you have good relationships, decision-making flows really well. Um, so I think in the brief, having those components embedded. Mm, but interesting, and interestingly, I think with um, uh, briefs, it's very easy to to revert back to our normal ways of developing briefs, you know, um, there's spatial requirements and certain all sorts of requirements, and and I think and and you try and embed principles in those briefs. But if you really think hard about those principles, um, and you know, um, around um, I don't know equity, inclusion, there are all sorts of really great words are embedded in those briefs um, around uh, cultural safety, for instance, and um, 
and cultural respect. Again, another recent project which had those ideas embedded um, in the brief, but but then people went away and did what they normally do. <laughs> you know? And so I think that really um, unpacking that and again having the right conversation with the right people around what that actually means, what all those terms mean, and then what that might translate to in, in terms of requirements or um, I think that would be that that would help. I'm not sure I can add too much co-authoring um, briefs, ensuring that um, community traditional owners are um, authoring what's written uh, in there about their history, about their culture, about their understanding of place. I think probably just even just more broadly when you step out at, at, at that kind of government or corporate level to to um, make those commitments ref, um, to partnership and self-determination reflected in the briefs. And that demonstrates to the proponents that um, the value that you're placing on that on that relationship and and that's going to be you know weighted accordingly to the successful proponent who responds appropriately to that. Mm. Uh, tendering for design, so EOI's RFTs competitions. This one's meaty. Come on. Yeah, competency. Yeah, competency in that in that area. Maybe really looking for for skills in that area and actually asking for that um, in the the tender. That 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 comes to mind immediately. Just in terms of, um, and I think Sarah, we've been talking about this just in terms of the um, the uh, national competency sta competency standards that have um, been modified to to reflect to reflect the importance of that. So I think we, as clients, we need to start really demanding that um, that competency and that awareness and that knowledge. Um, so yeah, from that initially, first step, first brainstorm. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think competency is a big thing. I think, um, I guess it's to do with embedding those um, principles of self-determination and how that's actually gonna play out. I think a lot of architects are brilliant, brilliant, brilliant at engaging and co-designing and doing things like that. And I think, you know, I'm always blown away at the sophistication of that work. But I think that idea of self-determination is still scary for the industry. Um, so I think it's, I'd love to see in return briefs, you know, how they're going to go on that process. And it might not be perfect. It might be, and, and what's the internal process for that organisation too? Because it's all well and good to kind of front up to projects and do it through a project. But what are you actually doing internally to change your organisation, to make your own organisation culturally safe, to make your own organisation thinking about what self-determination means in, in terms of how it operates? I'd love to see an engagement plan included within an EOI or an RFT that has been determined and agreed upon between the client and the traditional custodians about what you must do as an architect in the context of engaging on this project. I will die a happy person if that is in an RFT because then that is evidence that that relationship exists and it's been agreed upon how the traditional owners want to work on the project. Sorry, jumped in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's probably all of that around demonstrating experience relationships, just putting, again, you know, probably same as the last question, putting that requirement, putting it back on the on the tenderers to, to demonstrate um, their commitment, their experience, um, how they're going to deliver outcomes um, for the community and 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 leave a legacy um, 
to that from that project in, in within the community. But you're right, Sarah. Like I think there's something about what the what um, the client has done as well um, to build that relationship because then that sets, sets the standard. I think so. That's been a really interesting learning for for me because there's a lot that you can put on the industry, but um, in terms of demands or you know um, requirements. But I think that um, starting the conversation and from a client perspective um, and under starting that journey then embeds embeds that in the, the project to begin with and uh, and then and then the, it actually takes the burden away a little bit as well from because at least you've mapped out what needs to happen actually so um, and then the, they can follow that lead um, and then yes they'll come to the table with um, knowledge and competency um, but at least it's started happening on the client client side so yeah I think it's a really important point it would help the time issue yeah exactly because yeah. there's a lot more time before a project gets to an architect than there is for the actual design of the project that's right and I think if you think about um, competitive processes as well um, it's a little bit of a demand I mean it's a bit of a rich ask to get architects to sort of do that with and and a real and another thing that I've learned is it's a burden on traditional owners and custodians to, to sort of to do that work and have to speak to so many people. There's they just there's a lack of capacity in there. In um, there's just not enough people to, to get to it to projects like that. So it's a little bit unfair. Um, and that's just thinking about those competitive processes and some of the. the probity requirements that, that exist within that and yeah. traditional owners that are being engaged by various um, proponents out there and yeah. and they're conflicted by probity rules and all sorts of things. So it's, um, yeah, there's something that needs to kind of happen to address that. Yeah, it has to shift. Yeah. Competitions is a big one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So I'm going to combine the design phases, as in concept, schematic, DD, CD, and planning. Phew. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what was the initial question again, Sarah? What, what, what do you need? What are we Stepping through the general phases of a project, what are some quick fire opportunities for systemic change? Okay, I, I think I think the one that we spoke about before is architects have a really really powerful role in specifying um, First Nations businesses. Um, and going beyond, you know, Kinaway, Supply Nation and developing those relationships with those businesses as well. So those businesses actually know that they've got a relationship with an architect, they're going to be procured on these projects. By the time the builder comes on, that relationship's formed, so the builder's procurement of those um, services is going to be good. So I think it goes to that transfer of wealth. There's a huge opportunity to be transferring wealth and that's a really logical one for me. Um, I guess that is every stage, mainly detailed design though. Um. Yeah, I, that's an interesting one as well. Just from the from a design perspective, what you might do, but also as a client, what might happen during those phases as well. And and I feel like um, one of the big things we argue for, just for design more broadly, is a bit of time, a bit of design time, and a bit of. So I think that that's um, equally relevant to um, engagement with. Um, during the design process with the um, with traditional owners, really. So I think if you can build that the an appropriate amount of time for um, a, an appropriate level of you know um, collaborative design processes that are really um, you know honest, engaging, and um, and given enough time and space, I think amazing things can happen. And then um, and then also, I mean, I guess what we advocate for is 
um, a little, uh, you know, points along the way where there's fresh eyes and there's fresh perspectives and a little bit of a review, I guess, and equally on that side, um, that there's uh, the right skills there um, that are, are looking at that. Um, so, uh, again, this is a, a developing space, you know, that it, it's something that's um, evolving from our perspective as well. Um, so, yeah, what, that they're the sorts of things I think that we're, we're thinking about at the moment. I'd add to that, um, time's great, but at time can also equal a burden on communities because they can actually get fatigue from over-design and over-consultation. So I agree, I think time for good considered consultation is great, but I think the best thing that any non-First Nations person can do is take away the administrative burden. Yeah. Like get rid of all the gumps, pull it back, synthesise, give people the right information to make really good decisions and you'll get great decisions. But I think that's what we often just kind of can over-consult and it's everything and it's like absolutely it needs to be transparent, people making the right decisions. But, yeah, take away administrative burden. Anything that comes to mind for me is um, design processes and competitive processes where um, teams are required to put in a concept ahead of actually doing a, you know, a proper engagement um, process. So it's kind of flawed from the outset. So I don't know what the answer is to that, um, but uh, certainly, you know, that's something that needs to be acknowledged as, as a, a process that needs looking at to see what solutions might be able to be uh, embedded in, in, that, in that design process, that competitive process to enable uh, a more authentic um, approach. Right, planning as like the planning system needing planning approval. Aboriginal law and planning law. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of jaded at the moment <laughs> about this. Um, yeah, I think I think I find local council challenging. Um, not to say that I think there's anything wrong with local council. I, I think it's there is an under-resourcing in a lot of local councils um, and there's probably a lack of expertise, which is a bit of an issue at the moment. Um, we've seen a big, you know, shift of people moving rural regionally, um, but we're not seeing those expertise matched in council. And I think uh, when people don't understand the objectives of a project um, for community, yeah, you can just get caught up in the bureaucracy, really. That, doesn't, that wasn't a very clear answer because I can't really talk about <laughs> how frustrated I am. Yeah, I mean, Sarah, I'm not, I'm not sure whether you're talking specifically about the planning approval space, but I think from a, um, if I'm thinking about planning from two perspectives, um, from st a strategic planning perspective, where we're, we're sort of thinking about the future of cities and precincts and, and place, um, and regions as well. I think there's such a great opportunity to engage with this mapping exercise at that level from a strategic planning perspective. You know, really, if you were to, rather than dealing with things site by site, you know, what, what if you really did that proper piece of strategic work uh, alongside traditional owners? I think that would be really exciting and quite interesting. And then you would build environmental law um, principles that are based on perhaps Aboriginal law, actually that might be interesting. That's how you then would, um, because there's str the strategic planning exercise and then there's the statutory planning exercise, which is about, you know, implementation. So I think that, that there's a lot of potential there. 
I think local government is an interesting one because I it's been interesting from a there are have been a couple of projects that I've come across lately at a state government level where um, people are on the journey uh, with traditional owners and that there's a design process that's underway a collaborative design process and then I then I hear that local government's not on board with certain things and I'm like what how did this happen you know what how did this misalignment happen um, oh. Well, so I don't know that they're, you know, whether they're resourced or whether they're, you know, whether they're, um, they just haven't been, there's a governance issue for some projects. Um, it's just, it's interesting. The I think it's a lack of, like, I really do think it's a lack of resourcing. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. And, and you know, just responding to floods, fires, yes. like, and this is only going to get worse. They're on the front line of these issues and then to deal with the project that's got all these aspirations, you know, it's just, it's really quite a challenging space. Just think, um, just think of a couple of examples where uh, traditional owners have um, had the resources and the understanding, or they've had someone come on board of you know, on staff who has an understanding of statutory planning law, and it's changed their organisation um, being able to respond to the flood of you know, you know things that come across or through their door around you know, local government and planning and being be able to sort of challenge that. Um, so, you know, how do we, how do we resource, uh, build capacity and understanding within uh, the traditional owners um, groups to, to work in that space um, to be able to get more effective outcomes. And also think about some of the work that we've done recently, which was the developing, I mentioned it before, the cultural landscapes strategy, which is about applying a, a cultural landscape approach across landscapes, not just, um, you know, various parcels or jurisdictions of, of land. It's, you know, private and um, public land and, and applying a, a, a traditional owner cultural overlay to that um, could go some way between bridging those worlds as well. All right. Tendering for a contractor, as in contracts for builders and construction. Come on, Alex. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, look, there's a lot you can do with contracts. Um, they're nasty things. Um, you, you know, you can put a lot of levers in a contract. Everyone's leaving on contracts. They're really boring. Um, <laughs> I find them boring too. Um, but, look, you, you can put a whole range of levers in a contract to incentivise a builder to um, transfer wealth to First Nations, to, work, you know, to obviously um, provide employment opportunities. I still think it's about relationships. I, I really have worked out that working with builders with the kind of stick approach, the traditional stick approach is really not, not the solution we want builders to be successful because their ecosystems themselves, if actually you appoint a builder and then they have a First Nations um, business working for them and, you know, you delay that builder, you actually might be impacting that First Nations business. So you really need to think of, you, like I think we think of builders as sometimes the enemy. They're trying to get savings. They're trying to cut costs. They're trying to value manage. They're kind of doing shifties on us the whole time. They, yeah, there is a bit of that <laughs> for sure. Um, but I think if you um, set up an arrangement with a builder where you're really trying to work in partnership, they believe in this work as well, 
Um, and you know that might be creating more resources. It might be on the client side having someone who is managing the social procurement partnerships, who's working with the builder around their supply chain issues. It's looking up the supply chain. Okay, is there an issue? I mean, one of the the biggest barriers for First Nations businesses to get employment in a building project is often secure, um, insurance and liability. For a builder, it's probably three dollars extra on their annual premium to to extend that liability to that small trade. Um, but, you know, do they have the time to go and call their insurance agency? Maybe not. So it's thinking about what are those sort of barriers that um, a builder might face to get the project done on time, on budget, which is what we're asking them to do, and the community want that, um, and working with them to try and alleviate those builds. We've done a bit of that, and I think it worked well. I think there's a lot more to be done. Um, but, yeah, you can put in your contract if you substitute a... Um, if you <laughs> turn up with a substitution of that material... Um, and you delay the project, then that delay fees on you. So, yeah, you can put really, not, like, tough things in there. It, they'll put more on your tender price, though. <laughs> but, yeah, so I think it is about relationship. I think it's about proper resourcing. There's something about um, integrity throughout the process that's quite important, Alex, mm. what you just mentioned around substitutions. And, and, and I think that, so I think looking at the process end-to-end -end and making sure that that really wraps up and that people don't do that, you know, um, because otherwise it goes to it goes back to a trust issue with what you've actually, um, you know, spoken about with community, um, and uh, that can unravel, to, and that can unravel in, from any perspective actually. So it really, um, and that, that's why I go back to quality and about um, and legacy, because if you're putting that at the centre of the conversation, then um, it, there's just that that shouldn't happen, you know. Kind of forgotten the question, but I, <laughs> um, caring for country principles in the materials that are being used. You know, traditional owners will often um, place a high value on on not um, damaging country any further with the with the materials, ensuring that they're um, sourced from sustainable sources and things like that, or that it's removing um, stone from country and things like that. Um, what's the alternative to that but still being able to achieve, you know, the desired outcome. So I think, um, I mean, and also recognising there's certain to be additional costs to that to that approach. Um, so that goes back to, you know, the investment and the, the client to be able to value that as well. So um, I think that's something that we can look at um, and, uh, you know, uh, create a more of an alignment with on those values and uh, the engagement with traditional owners will be um, far more richer um, when uh, those types of uh, values are, are, are prioritised. I've, I've got more but we're coming towards the end of our time so maybe I'll stop but I should have also added in quantity surveyors um, and in the context of they need to answer that problem, they need to be aware of the realities of a type of project and the type of um, materials and specification of First Nations businesses which might be smaller and more expensive or not, um, so that it's actually factored in way early in that business case phase right at the beginning so you're not banging your head against a wall at the end and cost escalation because that's never factored in. Um, all right, I'll stop. Um, thank you so much to our wonderful speakers. I really enjoyed having this yarn. I think there's probably about 17 more yarns that could come out of it in terms of systemic change and things that need to happen. Um, and thank you all for hanging around and listening, even though it's getting a bit cold. Um, 
the conversation continues. <laughs> thank you very much and thank you to the speakers. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>